everybody, and welcome back to Recovery Machine. My name's Nathan. We're joined today by, as always, by my co-host, Corey. Hello, Corey. How are you doing? Hey, Nathan. I'm good. Thanks. Good to see you again. You as well. And uh, we've got a special guest here today who happens to also be my dad. His name is Burton, and we're bringing him in uh, as a as somebody who's got a a very wide, uh, a very experienced background in uh, the recovery world. And uh, so we're going to get kind of a different perspective and uh, see if he can help us out with today's topic. Hello, Burton. Hello, Nathan. Hello, Corey. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me to episode eight of Recovery Machine. Uh, glad to be here. And we are glad to have you. Yeah. Thanks for coming. My dad uh, helps uh, often with my Obsidian Support Services groups that I hold for uh, healthcare professionals. We do that a couple times a week, and he's usually there at least once, sometimes twice. And I find that very helpful, not just to have uh, kind of a backup in case for the, the rare occasion that I can't make it, but just to have somebody who, who's been around this kind of uh I guess, material, you could say, for a, a long time, a lot longer than me. And uh, often his insight is is very valuable to the other members in the group. So I thank you for that, sir. You're welcome. And uh, it's part of recovery for me as well. My continued recovery is to be involved, to be connected. And if I contribute and help others, that's all the better for me as well. Indeed. Um, so today, what we're going to do, just to give you a kind of an overview here, is uh, our last topic was, the focus was rather narrow. It was a niche topic, and our aim was to help people who were specifically in, that, in, in those circumstances at that time. And I believe we did a decent job of providing information for somebody who was facing uh, an IME. Uh, so that's that's all well and good. It might have been a little bit of a dry topic as far as uh, for people who are just listening as from a, an outsider's perspective. Um, but for this one, we want to we're, we're kind of going to look inwards uh, and and take more of an approach where we we take a look at how an individual would feel at a at this point in their in their recovery journey. So they've been kind of examined, they've been put through this big process. They've learned that they're probably going to a treatment center. Their life has kind of been put on pause. So you're sitting in the void and, uh, and what, what emotion do you recall feeling most prominently during that period, Corey? I think, I think that shame was a really big one for me uh, among other emotions and other feelings. Um, shame was, was a factor in what led me into addiction and that I was experiencing during addiction and uh, kind of was a fuel that kept me going, but it was also just very present when the, when the fog of addiction was clearing and uh, I was sitting at home with, you know, off work and nothing, nothing that I had to do. Um, that was a feeling that was very, very present at the front of my mind. And I think it's, I've learned and, and you guys might agree that it's a pretty common, common experience for, for people in our position. Absolutely. Especially, I, I think it's a big shift if you're going from somebody who's respected for a profession that's main goal is to help people. Uh, usually 
as a healthcare professional, you have a, a certain amount of status attached to your, your job title. So to kind of move that, uh, move that position down and uh, view yourself differently, it's, it's definitely something that I experienced and it was hard. It was, it was a big part of, of a, a big part of my recovery was trying to get back on my own team, even though I was feeling bad about myself and questioning what kind of a person I was, that kind of thing. So um, it is a, it's an important topic and one that's important enough that I feel we, uh, we do discuss it today. So to help us with that, we do have a Burton and uh, maybe you could tell us just a little bit about um, the kind of stuff that you've done in the recovery world uh, back in, I guess it was what the, was it the eighties and the nineties you started doing this, that type of stuff for. Yeah, that's, that's right. Late eighties, nineties was big for uh, the recovery time, a lot of innovation and a lot of different things going on there. And I was lucky enough to be introduced to it early enough in my life that, uh, that I could get involved and it's helped me a lot. Um, my background is I came from uh, a family that was, uh, had a history of alcoholism and, uh, different kinds of addictions and abuse and different things that were there to varying degrees. I, I come from a big family. I've got uh, lots of siblings and they, you know, speaking with them, their experience was slightly different. So I'm speaking from my own experience of my family. I'm not laying blame or sh shame or anything on my family either. And uh, it's just was my perspective that, uh, I saw things in my family and in my own personal development, I started to notice that things that I was not happy about that I learned as a child in my family were starting to come out in my personality. And I, I decided to address that and deal with it and uh, get some counseling. And one of the first groups I went to was adult children of alcoholics. And uh, it was an amazing experience to walk in there it was very difficult to walk in there. And what was keeping me from walking in that door was uh, that it was a big secret, you know, in our family that alcoholism and the problems that it was causing was a secret. It wasn't something that we spoke of outside the family. And that wasn't just uh, implied. There was specific instructions not to talk about that. And so the, the, that was a source of, of shame right there. And part of what shame does is it wants to hide. So that was built right into my family dynamic. So to step into that room with strangers and, you know, I, my name is Burton. I'm, you know, I'm an adult child. I'm an alcoholic, you know, even with that distance from, uh, um, you know, that one generation kind of distance, I wasn't saying I was an alcoholic, which would be even more difficult. But to say I'm part of a family that is experiencing these problems was carried a lot of shame. And to do that, you know, um, is half the battle. If you can step into a group, step out into the light a little bit. And uh, especially I found it very helpful that what was in that room was not some organization, not some authority, uh, you know, some authority on the subject, but my peers. And as I heard those people speak that 
that their, their own personal experience around that room, I realized I'm not alone. I'm not alone in this. This is happening in other homes. This is happening in other people's lives. And I found, I found, uh, I found a new family there within the recovery world. And I've never looked back. I've uh, since then, uh, my um, goal was to work on any particular issue that came up in my life and find a group that dealt with that particular issue. And if I couldn't find a group, I started one. And I did the research and I invited others and we worked on whatever it was we were working on. And uh, I've continued that. Uh, I find that my facilitation in group forces me to uh, be sharp and ahead and uh, learn the latest and greatest and uh, present that to the group. And, and it really helped me integrate that not only to be a participant, but to you know, step out even farther into the recovery world and start to facilitate those groups. And I think my, uh, it, I'm really appreciative of being able to be connected with the Obsidian and recovery machine here to continue that work because it's been very beneficial to me. So uh, I guess that's a, that's kind of a overview there. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, yeah. That's a great overview. Um I can remember being a teenager and not really, not really understanding what you were doing, uh, spending all this time, you know, going to groups and talking to different strange people. And I can remember people would call late at night and you would be, you know, trying to talk them through some sort of a crisis. And uh, I didn't really understand what was going on there, but I think from what you've said before, you reached a point in your life where you, it was a sort of uh, a crossroads and you had to decide whether to take the time to work on yourself, to try and deal with the, with your past or not, don't take the time and just kind of push it down and move forward with the risk of, of kind of uh, passing those demons along. And at the time, I can remember being resentful because, uh, you know, you weren't around as much as I would have liked. And uh, it took me a few years to understand that the sacrifice you made was an important one. Uh, can you remember, was there a time where you had to kind of debate that in your mind and make that call? Yes, I, I specifically know the... Uh... I, I went to a group um, for survivors of sexual abuse for men, which was very rare in BC at that time. As far as I know, there was only one uh, group in Prince George, which is 75 miles north of me. And the other one was in Vancouver. So another friend of mine that wanted to work on the same uh, subject, we drove up to Prince George once a week for a whole winter and there was some bad weather and stuff like that. And uh, I was able to get into a group of men that had uh, experienced the same thing. And um, one of the, uh, we had a very good counselor running it. And one of the things that we did in that group was do a, uh, like a family history. So we had uh, like a family tree going back as far as we could remember. Then we had, uh, she would say, you know, tick all the, but beside the names, anybody that you knew or suspected had a problem with alcohol, tick, 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 all the way. Uh, 
anybody that you knew had uh, problems with um, sexual abuse in some way, tick, 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 um, unplanned pregnancies, tick, uh, divorces, tick, all sorts of family dynamic uh, and problem things like that. So you would, you'd have this, I had this big map and I get a, I come from a fairly big family. So it was quite huge. And uh, then when it was all done, she said, see where you are on that, on that map. And I could see, you know, sexual abuse running down this side of the family and alcoholism and, and different things running down this side of the family. And there I am. She says, is, is it any wonder you're having problems? You know, and this was just sweeping down. And the, the idea was for me, I have to stop this in this generation. I cannot pass this stuff on to my kids because it does seem to be multi-generational. We learn, you know, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, shame today. And shame is one of the drivers of addiction and, and these behaviors in families. It's, it's really what drives it as far as I, I understand. So if I was going to stop this, in its tracks and not pass all this family history on to my kids. I had to do the work. And that was a, that was a sacrifice. I knew it was a sacrifice because I was taking time away from my kids that were growing up at the time. And it, it was a, it was a hard decision, but I had to do it. And like you said, you may not have understood it at the time, but that's what I was doing. It was a very conscious effort. The, the, the kind of idea at the time was you can either pass this stuff on generationally or you can pass it back and i chose to pass it back you know i i i saw it for what it was in my history and my family tree and i was not going to pass that on to my kids and that was my that was my goal so to whatever degree that i was successful um i think uh you know when my kids got into trouble with different things in their life i i said you know there's self-help there's there's you can work on this stuff. You know, you've, you'll, you'll have to pick up the, the thread and, and maybe sort some things out for yourself. But I didn't want to pour all that family history on top of you. So if I, if I could create some sort of a fence or barrier between myself and those generational learnings, then uh, I would hope that it would benefit my children. And I believe it has. So Yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, those efforts are much appreciated for sure. Um, I guess uh, one of the things we should kind of get out of the way right away is uh, there's often confusion between the terms uh, guilt and shame. And uh, maybe uh, Corey, could you, in in your opinion, what what is the difference in those two terms to you? Well, first of all, yeah, I, I think there is lots of confusion. I hear it. Um, I hear it miss misexplained, or I think I won't say misexplained. I'll say I, I hear people use the term or use the expression of guilt a lot and guilt being that I did something wrong mm -hmm. versus shame being, I am wrong. I am bad. I am lesser than, and I think they can, they can exist simultaneously and side by side and very often they do. And in my case, I think they, they certainly did. Um, but if you, if you break down the two, there are many explanations for, for why we did something bad, but to say I am bad, it, 
has tremendous consequence. And so that's what I think. I think of the the consequences of that and the feelings that it generates. And we'll, we're going to get into all of that. Um, but what do you, what do you think about that Burton? Well, I would agree with that. Uh, guilt to me is I did something wrong. Shame is I am bad. And the difference between those two for me is I did something wrong. That's something I, that I can rectify and change and, uh, you know, make restitution, uh, recognize and repair. But uh, when it's internal like that, it's something to do with my very being. It can really crush a person and shame is, uh, yeah, it's very difficult. It's, um, yeah, it's more about who I am as a person rather than what my behavior was. And it's, it can be really, really devastating. Yeah. Yeah, it sure can. I thought was, that I think was the most dangerous part of my trying to get better. When I had my lowest lows, it was because of the negative rhetoric about what I am, not what I did. And trying to convince yourself otherwise, when you've got this, you're already in a negative headspace. And then I had this evidence in front of me of of these things that I had done, this path that I had chose, and I had to look at myself and ask, what what kind of a person am I? How did I how did I go from this point to this point? And if I was able to do that, then what does that say about my character? And you begin to take yourself apart from the interior, and that is a that's a dangerous state of mind because it's really hard to be on your own team when you're your number one critic. Yeah. You know, the other thing that I, that came to mind for me is that as we were talking, the shame comes with a story, you know, that, that guilt, um, the behaviors that are attached to the two um, and the sort of the opinion that we have of ourselves as they relate to the two are, are quite different. And, And if you think about when you feel guilty, you might, you might, do something that you don't want to do, or it might push you to, it might drive you to do something extra for someone. But when you're ashamed, it brings you inward. You retreat, you isolate, um, or you try to mask it and bury it and, and do all these behaviors to cover it up. Whereas guilt, I don't think does the same thing. Would you agree? Uh, I certainly would. What do you think, Dad? Yes, I definitely agree. Um, if we are feeling shame, we tend to withdraw. That's that's the immediate reaction. It's almost like a bright light is shining upon us on a stage, and we want to get out of that spotlight. Uh, the first thing is the aversion of the eyes. You know, I, I can't look you in the eye. I can remember feeling that as a child a lot, not being able to look people in the eye, and that was the shame that I was feeling from my uh, family situation or whatever and uh you know physically running away uh just not being there and and what that does is it isolates us when we could really use some support and help and and uh it's a very difficult one whereas guilt it's uh it's actually more socially accepted to be guilty of something because you're expected to make restitution and change your behavior but 
it's more external. It's, it's more about what you did rather than who you are as a person, which is what shame really is. Yeah, exactly. And we know the importance of avoiding the, the, the intuitive kind of motivation to self-isolate for many people who are especially early in recovery. I mean, that's, that's one of the default positions for me. I, I could, I could easily self-isolate both in active addiction and early recovery and shame just gives you a fantastic excuse to accelerate that process, which makes it, you know, that's another part of why it's dangerous, I think. Well, I think that's why um, a lot of overdoses that we're experiencing in British Columbia right now are done in private. You know, it's, this, it's not in a public setting. It's not with a friend. People are overdosing alone. And I think that the reason they're alone is because of the shame that's attached to that, that uh, uncontrolled behavior there. Exactly. Yeah. So you, you look at that emotion and you look at the impact it has and uh, you can consider it indirectly deadly in that way. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, so absolutely. Um, the same way they're starting to talk about uh, like you, I've seen discussions or heard discussions uh, online about how the loneliness has become a topic of, of the, of our current mental health crisis, as well as the opiate crisis. But uh, understanding that loneliness and being by yourself can actually take years off your life or put you in these situations where you're, you're actually more likely to overdose. And it's, it's pretty crazy to think that our species is so socially reliant on each other that when you separate us or cast us out of our tribe or our community, it actually can kill us. Yeah. You know? Well, if you look at historically, um, banishment from the tribe was deadly. We are social creatures and we rely on each other. And we cannot, you know, in, in the wilds, we can't survive on our own. A couple other examples of that that I can think of if people aren't familiar with addiction in particular is uh, how often people, when they're choking in public at a, like a public restaurant, their immediate response is not to wave their arms and ask for help. It's to run to the bathroom to be private and deal with it privately, even though that's, you know, it, if they don't get help, they may die. It's a very deadly reaction. So they would rather die than face the shame of the fact that they're choking in public. Yeah. And it also happens when people get lost in the bush, they will come out to a road. And then when somebody comes along, they will immediately go back into the bush because they don't want to be caught in that situation that they're ashamed about is how stupid can I be that I got lost? And they will actually risk their life by evading uh, you know, help, which is, you know, maybe um, a couple of examples that people aren't struggling with addiction or don't recognize that, you know, maybe they could identify with that a little bit better, that it was that shame can be deadly in that way. Absolutely. Yeah. This is why, why men don't get prostate exams. This is why prostate cancer and colorectal cancer are such killers in our society and particularly of men, I think is, is there are roots of that in shame. Right. 
So that's what we're talking about. And, you know, I think most people can identify with that or, you know, have had that experience where they would rather die than face the, the pain of shame. That's how emotionally painful it can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so, go ahead, Corey. Oh, no, I, you know, I, I was going to lead us into the, into the next question there for Burton and it, it kind of fits. So, and I've, I've had this discussion in, in um, one of the recovery groups I'm in asking folks to identify what the, what the feeling of shame is, what the physiological response that our body has when we feel ashamed is. And, and I've noticed that a lot of people struggle with answering that question or struggle with, with what that feeling is. And um, for me, being able to identify that feeling has been really, really helpful. And uh, so I wondered if, if you'd given any thought to that and if, if you can sort of walk us through that. Okay, so um, the best way I could describe uh, shame as social pain. It's it's a it's a pain that we feel in the social context. It's and it might be uh, you might recognize it in yourself and others with the diff the difficulty with eye contact. So the lowering of the eyes, the lowering of the head, uh, maybe even the palms and the coming up and covering the face. That's a, a, a common uh, shame response. It's not, it's not like fear where your hands or palms might be out to ward off some attack. It's, it's the pain is coming from, in, from being exposed. And uh, it's commonly felt in the face as heat. There's often a blush response that other people can see. So it's not just heat coming up, but you can actually see that in someone's face. And the fact that we that we see it in, or, or we experience shame in our face is, um, I think, really interesting because it shows that it is a social response. It's it's how we meet each other face to face, right? And we're exposed face to face. It's um, it can wash over the entire body as a paralyzing dread, like it can actually freeze us in our in our tracks, even when we do want to run. Um, it's about feeling very vulnerable, being exposed. Um, it's a sense that the audience, whether it's real or perceived is negatively judging us. And there's a strong desire to run and hide. So <laughs> I think that, um, that's the, that's the physiological, uh, characteristics. Um, I I've thought about that quite a bit and I think there's also, um, there's beliefs underneath that that are driving that. And the beliefs would be something like, there's something wrong with me. I am deeply flawed. I'm the worst person I know. I can remember, <laughs> I still actually carry that one as, uh, it's an interesting one. Uh, and, and there's actually value in, in that perspective, but it's not very fun to feel. And I, des I don't deserve to be it's actually, I believe, a, a major factor in suicide attempts and actual suicide is the belief that I do not deserve to be. So it's, it's a very important subject and it's difficult to face. I'm actually feeling some of it right now, just talking about it. It's, it's one of these things where I've got a very good uh, friend and mentor. He says, when you, when you start talking about shame, 
you get some on you. And I don't know <laughs> if you guys have noticed that, that maybe this, this subject is bringing on some, uh, some of those feelings. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it, those are some of the things that I, I think about when I think about shame. It's yeah, it's fascinating because the, the physical and physiological response mirrors the emotional response and the emotional instinct to retreat and the body kind of cues us in the same to it, it cues our body in the same way as it cues our mind that the safety then is to isolate and retreat and remove yourself from the situation, you know? Well, the problem with that, of course, is in a couple of instances that we mentioned, but also in, in addictions and uh, addictive behavior is it isolates us from help. And that's, that's the real problem. Right? And I think that that's the main point that we're trying to dis, uh, discuss here today is that it, you have to be aware of it because it can, it can be a real problem. Yeah. You know, I, I think about myself and that, that my, my substance use was obviously private and secretive. But even when I would have days where I wasn't using any substance, my inclination was still to retreat and still to isolate myself and, and, uh, and that push and push people away. And, um, and so it had a, had that effect on, on my relationships, but it also kind of created this loop where I would push people away and feel isolated and feel lonely and create a lot of bad feelings in myself and my negative self-talk. I would go and use a substance and then <laughs> feel ashamed of that. And then like, it was this feedback loop that would occur. That was, I think that made it really hard to get out of and hard to break on my own without support. I would agree that feedback loop is not only circular, it's spiral and it's spiraling down. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so exactly. To be able to recognize that in ourselves and others and to intervene and change our, uh, our response to it is really important. And I think it's a, it's a part of uh, recovery that is maybe often overlooked and it, it, I'm glad we're talking about it here today. Yeah. Yeah. It highlights the importance of awareness as a first step in, in many recovery processes, but uh, this one, especially because I think it uh, in that downward spiral, it's very easy to get lost. And once you're once once there's a certain point that's crossed, um, you kind of get into uh, a danger zone, and that's what I recognized in myself. And it actually scared me enough to to I, I realized that I was I was spiraling in a direction that could actually be physically dangerous to my life. And uh, I I was fortunate enough to be able to stop that spiral by reaching out and, and making connections again. But it is very, it's easy to see how somebody could get to a certain point that you're, you're for, uh, down far enough on that spiral and you, you lose the ability to kind of self-regulate and even your, your awareness of where you're at, uh, your lack of mental health and uh, just how dangerous the situation is. And, uh, yeah, I mean, this is, this has got to be a contributing factor to, to a lot of suicides or at least part of the process. 
Yes, I would agree very much so that it is a, it, it is a factor in suicide and it's, uh, and uh, people tend to suffer in quiet desperation. I can't remember who said that, but that's, I think especially men are, you know, we're subject to that, especially in the Western world where we're, um, you know, being standing on your own, on your own two feet and, and those kind of ideals really perpetuate that idea that it's, there's something weak about reaching out for help. And, uh, you know, when you're in shame, you really need help and uh, to be able to reach out for somebody else to recognize that and step in and, uh, and lend a hand is a really important. You could be throwing a lifeline to somebody. So if you recognize those behaviors and others, those isolating behaviors, you know, it, it could be time to uh, step in and, and be of some assistance there. Yeah, absolutely. That's a good point. Just as a, a side note, I've often wondered, and I've never seen any evidence or anybody do a study on this, but would you think that extroverts would have an advantage in this particular arena just because of their natural inclination to connect with people as opposed to somebody who's already maybe used to being by themselves? You know, is there a difference between introverts and extroverts in this part of the, of the uh, recovery process? Uh, I haven't really thought about that particularly. How about you, Corey? Have you, uh, have you thought about that point? That's such an interesting question. Um, I've noticed it. Oh. I, I, what well, I think what I notice, and I, and I don't know, I, I guess it's kind of a, a chicken or the egg question, you know, right. are, yeah. it, it makes me wonder if there are people who, who, stay inward or, or, or are less vocal because of, of shame. And I can think of times when I've interacted with people and, and you you can see them kind of come out of that shell and open up and get, get more comfortable with, with discussion. But um, I think it might be a, a slower process for the introvert. Um, although, you know, you just you have to look no further than than um, celebrities and and the media to see a whole list of people that we would classify as extroverts who are very open and very vocal and outrageous or whatever, and who carry a lot of pain, have addictive behavior, who in I can think of you know more cases than I could list right now uh, of people who end up dying as a result. Of, of suicide or overdose and you have to wonder well they were they put themselves out there to the world and um but obviously carried a whole lot of pain mm-hmm. um robin williams comes to mind uh right away in that category and you're right uh it could be that uh extroverts are still susceptible to the suffering and in, in silence you know, maybe, maybe there really, maybe there isn't that much difference. Well, I mean, it's, it's, I wonder, is it just another way of, of masking um, that pain mm. and that, and that shame? And some of us mask by isolating and by, by, you know, wearing a, wearing a mask that, that keeps us quiet and keeps us protected. And some of us wear a mask by that, that 
<laughs> makes us a whole other person. Right. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think about, about myself at work and the mask that I had was that I was like this endless um, giver who, you know, would, would be constantly sort of patient and empathetic and, and bubbly might be the wrong word, but, but really, really friendly. And when I get honest about it, I didn't feel like that at the time, but that was this construct that I had that um, made me likable and gave, and, and I think I got a lot of acceptance from that. And, and that's how I got my sort of strokes. And, um, but inside, I didn't feel like that. Now I'm not, I wasn't a, a Robin Williams or a Philip Seymour Hoffman or a Jim Morrison that, but that was as the nurse, that was who I was. And that was the identity that I took on, but that was um, in many ways, sort of a, a masked behavior, or at least it was a persona that I took on. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I don't know a single human being who, who doesn't employ that strategy at some point. It's, it's part of our nature. And it's one of the ways that we signal to each other that we're on the same team. And I think that uh, it actually kind of brings us to the, the next thing that we wanted to cover, which is why do we experience shame? What advantage does it, does it bring us individually? What, uh, what advantages does it confer to our species? You know, what is the point of this emotion? It must, it must serve some purpose. What is that purpose? Well, uh, I ran across a quote from Freud, not that I'm necessarily a Freudian. I, I <laughs> think that he did some interesting work, but he said, the first person to hurl an insult and said, instead of a stone was the founder of civilization. And I thought that's, that's pretty incredible. If as human beings, we can sanction each other for behavior that's not acceptable within the group, but not kill each other over it. There, that's that's probably the first advantage right there. So that that was interesting. And from my own studies, what I believe is the purpose of shame is to regulate the behavior of individuals in a group without the need of outright violence. So if we can, it's like an unspoken code of conduct, I guess. What uh, it actually helps to to preserve the group. It exists to protect the group, not the individual, which is a really interesting thing. We're our four basic uh, emotions that we're kind of born with uh, anger, love, fear, and um, what's the other one? Anyways, the, the basic ones. And then there's uh, when, when we're working with these four kind of emotions in group work, what we often found was that shame would show up. It, can sh it could show up at any time in any, any place. And what that was, where it was coming from was from the group. It wasn't, it doesn't originate necessarily with the in individual. It's felt by the individual, but it's, it's judgment from the group. And the group often has more power than the individual. So it's a very powerful uh, tool to keep the individual in line when they're in a group. So the benefit for the individual is, as uh, you may be at arm's length that it may be, the benefit of shame 
in a group is that I have a group to, to belong to. And uh, if I behave myself and, uh, you know, maintain the group norms, I can, uh, I can be a part of the, of the group and that affords me protection. So that's kind of the trade-off. Um, shame doesn't seem to be, we're not born with it, but we learn it between maybe two, three years old when we start to really individuate and see ourselves as an individual. Then all of a sudden we feel the vulnerability that, you know, I'm separate from the group and I have to behave myself in the group so that I'm accepted in the group. And it's actually quite dreadful because, um, it's a selection for survival for the group. I think biologically, it's not a selection for survival of the individual. The group will actually sacrifice the individual. They will banish them. They'll exclude them at the, so that the expense of the individual, the group can survive. And that is the strength of our species, I think. So I think it's, it's a very kind of ancient construct and it's, that's what it's for is to, uh, to maintain the integrity of a culture, a group, an idea, a family, you have to behave yourself if you want to belong. Otherwise, you're out. Yeah. And uh, and in ancient times, to be banished meant death. So it's not surprising that in the list of fears, um, public speaking, for instance, is rated higher consistently. It's number one in uh, a list of fears and death is somewhere down the line four five down the line you know facing death so we fear shame we fear the feeling of shame more than death itself and i gave you some examples of somebody running off to a private bathroom to choke to death in a restaurant you know that it's bizarre that it's it's that powerful yeah and uh it it does make sense from uh from a cultural standpoint and from a group dynamics standpoint, I wonder how that would play in. Um, you've, you've probably heard uh, discussions about how, when we were, uh, we were nomadic. Um, the idea was that we, we roamed around in, in kind of smaller bands. And at some point, uh, the number that, uh, that I, I think here most commonly is 200. So you get, once you're above 200 humans in a group or a tribe or a clan or whatever, there becomes a lot of conflict and it becomes difficult to, to hold that group together without some kind of violence. Um, so there's, there's several kind of built in, some are built in like shame, I think is, is, you know, how you're describing a built in kind of regulator of the group. And then other things were brought in later to help bring the, the group together. Like uh, religion would be an example of something that can, that can hold bigger groups together um, without violence. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I didn't uh, really consider, I mean, if you think of it from a, an individual's point of view, uh, you, you're probably right. It probably doesn't, it doesn't serve the individual at all. No. And, uh, it from, you know, if you're looking at it evolutionarily, it's, uh, it makes sense. It serves the group. Yeah. It serves the group. And it's why human beings being as weak and, and fragile as we are, have been able to survive and 
and thrive is because it's part of the group dynamic that makes us very strong as a group. And uh, yeah, so recognizing that um, we don't want to banish ourselves. That's one of the things I learned about shame is it, we don't need the group to banish us. We will banish ourselves. We will withdraw and uh, isolate, right? And it's, it can be deadly. It, it is actually a deadly behavior. So to challenge that and to step into a group, you know, I really believe that if somebody walks into a self-help group, half of their recovery is already complete. It's half the job to get in the door. And I applaud anybody that, you know, gets up from that place, feeling the shame and going and doing it anyway, stepping in that door and starting to ask for help. That is the beginning and it's half the work. You're half done if you do that. Agreed. Yeah. I, I certainly agree too. <clears throat> do you th do you think it's like a like a a preset or a pre-existing light switch that it, that exists within us that gets turned on by something, you know, by by a social construct or by by family or by the the tribe, so to speak. Like not all not all disapproval leads to shame. Not all um, conflict or um or molding or modeling leads to shame but you know i was thinking that it, it's something that exists within us but it, there's a the social component has to has to has to turn it on and then our our own body and our own brain kind of does the <laughs> does the rest right like you know in in pre you know in in those sort of nomadic um, nomadic times that you were speaking of, or like at the dawn of, of human beings wearing clothing, right. That, that, that was sort of the start of human modesty and, and certainly shame had to be a part of that. And the, <laughs> the last guy to come out of the cave, not wearing the loincloth would have, would have experienced shame very, very early on and not known what to call it, but would have retreated and would have been, you know, potentially sort of, uh, um, forced out or forced to conform. Uh, but if you, but if he was alone, there wouldn't, that wouldn't have existed in the first place. He could have done whatever he pleased. Right. But did they, would the first guy say the first guy who put on a pair of pants, you'd think the rest of the tribe would make fun of him. You know, <laughs> I, I think that comes from the vulnerability that we realize when we're two or three years old and we start to individuate what we realize is we can be separated from the protection of the group of the family. And we feel alone. We feel vulnerable, which is a good response to have. And we want to, it protects kids from wandering off in the bush. Basically it keeps them close at hand. And uh, the, I think the kind of mental, if you want to step it out is that I am separate from the group. Therefore, I'm vulnerable and I need the protection of the group. So I'm going to do whatever it takes to be accepted by the group. And that's kind of the beginning of the idea of, of if, I, if I don't toe the line, if I don't pull my weight, if I don't behave myself, I could be excluded and, and I don't want that. So I start to mold my personality um, based on being separate. And it's interesting if you look up shame in the dictionary, one of the ways it describes it is self-consciousness. 
And I really think that that is uh, self-awareness is what we are as an individual. And it's one of the traits of human being a human being or a, it's a, it takes a bit of a higher uh, consciousness to be, to realize that we're separate from the world, that we're separate from the group that we are, that we do stand alone. And immediately we feel the vulnerability of that and the impetus to conform to the group. And I think that that's, that's how shame starts to, we start to internalize that. After a while, we don't need somebody to tell us the rules. We know when we step out of line, we can see it in, in the looks or the, or the reactions of people. Right. And yeah. Like a psychological pheromone. It is very interesting that we have that. And I think it is one of the basis. It is one of the strengths of uh, group cohesion. And there, there is another one actually that I, that I think is the more the positive feedback, which is praise. We can get both of those from the group. We, we can get shame when we're stepping out of line and we can get praise and reward when we're doing good. And it can be a real motivator for mastery, for instance, to excel at a particular um, specialty. And that's another strength of uh, human civilization is we've developed specialties. So we don't all have to be good at everything. And I think that's where it starts is that self-consciousness and, and having that feeling of shame and that reward mechanism of praise. It's, I think those are kind of related. So I'm just thinking about this um, from a evolution point of view here. And one would think that by now sociopathy would have basically been bred out of us. And yet it's a condition that remains, I think, fairly stable in populations, if I'm not mistaken. So I wonder if that's, it. maybe it's a, a, a gene that's linked to other useful attributes. That's probably what's going on there. But is that, is that then the malfunction for people who, you know, a, a true sociopath who has no, you basically have no shame, right? You don't feel bad. You have no, there's no negative emotional feedback. And uh, it's interesting that that continues to, to be a, a reality in our species. Cause you would think that those people would have been quickly ostracized and those genes would have perished. Um, I, I think that the values of individuality, especially in the Western world, kind of promote that behavior. You know, the, the rugged individual is, is the, is the typical or eight, the typical American or, or whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And that behavior is rewarded a lot in, in our culture. So there's also some mechanisms to have those outliers that are exceptional and we reward them. Like why do CEOs of, of uh, companies end up getting billions and billions of dollars when they, they're not necessarily working for the benefit of, uh, of everybody. They're very competitive and they're, and they're building this empire for themselves. And I think it is actually one of the problems with, uh, the corporation itself having starting to get human rights, it's immortal and it has no conscience. It has no shame. So th that is, that is dangerous. I think so. That's another yeah. st st story, but there's a lot to this subject. It's very deep. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and, and the other thing that I was thinking of is that that there's that inherited piece where where and I I don't know about sociopathy, but with psychopathy, um, abuse, either physical abuse or sexual abuse, is a is part of that recipe. That, so they say um, for say serial killers, and so if if, if they're grandparents and if you particularly if you think about like a you know 200 years ago or 150 years ago if their great grandparents weren't didn't have the resources or the the support or the all of the factors that would lead one to to change that behavior and to to look inward and then they handed that to their child and then they handed that to their child that there's the, the piece of it that where it becomes and Burton you spoke at the beginning of breaking that cycle I think that's part of the risk that that uh, you know, if you look at the list of of serial killers in in North America, how many of those people experienced trauma or abuse or or shame in their early upbringing, and then didn't for whatever reason didn't weren't able to kind of break through that. Um, but there's the the inherited factor too, and if I think if you asked them. Um, would they even be willing to sort of, or able to see that as, as, as a factor and then as the role that that played, I don't know, but. Um... They have done some experiments with uh, kind of a scale of shame and uh, what's the other one? Um, guilt, shame and guilt. And, and they did some, I think some fairly uh, tough experiences with, for children where they would, they would basically accuse them of breaking something that belonged to an adult and said, you know, what happened here? Well, how come this is broken? Did you break this kind of thing? And if there's a scale there, there's a range where children may tend to uh, respond with more of a guilty kind of response, which is, oh, uh, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't realize I didn't mean to break it. And they immediately try and put the thing back together, they start to try and fix it. They, they go into that mode of fixing it. Whereas the, some children react more with shame, which is a denial. I didn't do it or get angry about it, or even, uh, you know, their eyes are averted and they, they turn inward and, and feel really bad about themselves for something they didn't even do, you know? And, uh, so, I think that's the first thing that we kind of have to sort out is that how do we personally respond to a mistake, an error or whatever? Do we respond with shame where we feel bad about ourselves or do we respond with that, that more of a guilty thing where I'm going to take responsibility for it and I'm going to try and fix it. I don't know if that, how much that um, relates to, you know, these disorders of, of, being a psychopath or whatever, but it seems to me that that's a deficiency where they can't feel shame. And, and that is, that, that can lead to some real problems behaviorally. Yeah. Um, what you're talking about there is uh, it, it's kind of the basis of what I believe to be one of the factors in people who successfully recover from addiction is whether they whether they internalize whatever brought them to, you know, whether it was a trauma or 
a, a series of mistakes or poor decisions, whatever brought them to the point where they found themselves uh, physically dependent and psychologically dependent upon a substance. And now they want to, you know, they're, they're kind of at that crossroads. If, if the, the person in question is able to view it as a mistake and something that is, that is fixable as opposed to a character defect, then you would, you would imagine they would have an easier road back, or at least they would be motivated to attempt to, to make it back. Whereas, you know, despondence might be the, the outcome for the other person. Or withdrawal or uh, continuing with the numbing uh, of some substance use, right? Because that's one of the things that uh, substance use does for us is it down-regulates our emotions, including shame, right? So we don't feel it. But of course, it doesn't fix the problem. We need to, you know, look at, like you said, look at what it is that we can fix and externally start to work on it and I think that's why it's important that you're talking about it in, in recovery machine, because people, some people, I don't think even recognize what they're really up against. It's not their, their drug of choice they're up against. It's the shame that's driving it. And I really do think it's a driver in, in addiction and continued use. Yeah. So, that, and, and that's what our next question to you, to you was Burton was the role that shame plays in the addictive process. And then we want to talk a little bit about the, the role that shame plays in the recovery process and the effect it, it can have. Um, but with, again, we, and we talked about that feedback loop where the shame exists before, before addiction in many cases. And then there's the shame as it relates specifically, specifically to addiction. Um, but so I guess my question is what, what do you, um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you what do you see in people or or in yourself? Where is it? Is it is the role of it? Um, you know how did it? How does it direct? How does that link form? How does it? How does it take you to that place? I I've actually come to the point where I believe that um, the addictive behavior and the cycle around it is not the problem itself. It is actually a symptom of internalized shame. If I don't know, you know, that might be a bit of a radical statement, but uh, I really do think that that's what we're trying to do with the addictive process is downregulate shame, which is extremely painful. It's, uh, it is a, I call it, a, it's the social pain. We have emotional pain, we have physical pain and, uh, you know, some may even say we have spiritual pain where we feel uh, disconnected from, you know, the source of life and those kind of things. But I believe that shame is manifest in social pain and uh, drug use or alcohol use that downregulates pain can be very seductive. It works. You know, we, yeah. we, we find, you know, even in the pain, the kind of social pain that we experience in teenage years where we're socially awkward and trying to find our way and somebody brings some, some booze to a party, man, all sorts of things can happen. And I feel great. I feel, uh, you know, I'm free from 
that pain that I feel almost every day at school or whatever, right? And it can be very seductive. So I think that it's an integral part of what the addictive process is. And we need to recognize that and deal with it to have an effective and long-term uh, recovery. We need to pay attention to shame and recognize that it is a motivator and actually the fuel for relapse as well. You know, if we get into a position where we're feeling shame again, even though we've been doing well, we have some sort of slip, it can really fuel us back into, uh, uh, you know, a serious relapse. Do you think there's a sliding scale, so to speak, as far as how likely somebody is to turn to shame or internalize an event as shame? Um, there's a there's a fairly uh, like uh, for example, Dr. Gibor Mate uh, is a, a proponent of the belief that all addiction is trauma based. Mm-hmm. I I I don't buy into that totally. I I think that uh, there are cases where people just simply lose control of a recreational uh, kind of crutch uh, that's you know, and it becomes an addiction that's not based on them trying to cover up some sort of pain from trauma. But I also see that in many, many, many cases, trauma is is part of that event. So do you think that it, some people are just naturally inclined to kind of respond to maybe what would be a mild, uh, considered a mild traumatic event to one person uh, turns into a major issue for somebody else that they just internalize as shame and, you know, then that goes on to, to fuel a substance abuse problem? Well, we talked a little bit about the difference between feeling guilty and feeling shame. And I think that that's, that's probably the kind of the first step. If people have the similar experience and they, and they are farther up on the, on the scale where they would feel that as guilt, then they may be empowered to make restitution and change their behavior and, you know, use it as a learning experience and go on and grow from that. If somebody has that same experience and they experience it as more a shame where I'm a bad person, I'm, you know, there's something wrong with me that can be much more difficult to deal with and to, and if they find something that masks that pain, because shame is very painful if they can find something to mask that pain, it's very seductive. So does that answer your question? Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah, it does. So can, we, oh, go ahead, sorry, No, No, please, you. Go ahead, Nathan. I, so what I'm understanding from you, Dad, is that uh, the, the statement you made earlier that uh, all you believe – addiction is is largely fueled from shame uh and i'm what i'm curious about is would that shame then always be linked to some kind of substantial trauma or i guess like we were just discussing there i mean the 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 whole aspect of trauma is completely subjective so Mm -hmm. uh, it 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 totally would depend upon the the sensitivity of the individual to perceive an event as traumatic and then it would depend on the their tendency to internalize that event as something that is wrong with them 
as opposed to something that happened to them that is a, you know, maybe they were in the wrong place at the wrong time, but not you are a wrong, your existence is wrong. Well, I think one of the the ways that we tend to make that decision to say there's something wrong with me, if we are, especially if we're traumatized within a family unit where or by our caregivers, our, our loved ones that are supposed to be taking care of us, there's an event that happens in the home. Dad comes home drunk and is is fighting with mom. I can't as a child even consider the possibility that there's something wrong with my caregivers that I um, rely on for my very life. I can't even face that. So how do I experience that? I experience that, that violent interaction between my parents as there's something wrong with me. That's how it starts. I really do think that if it's at that point where I cannot face the possibility that my caregivers that I, that I rely on for my very life are unreliable and maybe even dangerous, I have to put it on me. And that's how, how I think shame starts right there. And huh. I, that might not be the only way, but that would be an example of how it could start. Yeah, that's a really interesting point. I, I totally agree with you, Burton. I, uh, I mentioned this in, our, in the meeting that, that we all attended on Thursday, the Dr. Matei quote, where you know he says trauma is not the event that happens to you, whatever that may be. Trauma is the, the, internal, the, the internal event that happens mm-hmm. in response to the external. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm highly paraphrasing there. Um, but but I, I, think of, I think of this, that like, here's, a, here's an example from my, from my life. I, was, I didn't have, um, I had lots of dental issues as a kid and I didn't have any sort of front teeth until I was 13 years old. And uh, when I was maybe 11 or 12, a teacher made fun of me in front of the entire class for not having any front teeth. And now as an adult, and I've worked through that memory, and I, and I, I remember throughout my whole life thinking, well, that wasn't that traumatic. That wasn't that big of a deal, but it always stuck with me. And it made, you know, I, I was self-conscious as it was of that. And it made me more self-conscious because it drew attention to it and, and he got a big laugh from the class and stuff. Um, but I, but I was able to rationalize it by saying, Oh no, that wasn't a trauma. But what happened to me inside as a, as a 11 or 12 year old was shame. And it directly made that connection between shame and, and the social aspect of it. And, and then kind of feeling like I needed to retreat. And, um, and again, so the, the trauma, to an adult, if, if that happened to me now, wouldn't be the same, but through the lens of an 11 or 12 year old, sort of prepubescent or, or, you know, preteen going through that, that's devastating. And now I can look at it and say, what an asshole teacher. But then it was like, no, what an, what an asshole I am. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a couple of points there. Um, Corey, thanks for sharing that because that is, to me, that's one of the shame breakers is to, to share it within a, a group that understands and, and supports and recognize that so we can support you in that. A couple of points there. One is it happened to your face. He was specifically talking about your teeth. And that's very vulnerable. Our face is very vulnerable to shame. 
and we we experience shame in our face you know we get the blush response we want to cover our eyes we want to protect ourselves so when you're ins insulting someone's looks their face their you know the uh, it, it that is a that is a shaming event and the other point that i wanted to make there he didn't do that in private with you he didn't do it with you in front of your loved ones and your parents that could protect you he singled you out and he said it within the group and elicited a group response and that is the real power of shame is that it it carries the weight of the group and it's it's devastating to the individual you have almost no defense against that. You're vulnerable. Yeah. And that, that is a, it's often done that way. People, they don't come and confront you about something they're pissed off about in private. They wait until you're in their group and then they elicit the, the support of the group to shame you. So there's, there's two main points there. One that it happens to your face and, and that's, we're very vulnerable in our face to shame. And number two, that, somebody used the group against you and that's why it's so powerful and painful and traumatic. absolutely and 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 anything that occurs through the through the lens of to the lens of a child is is interpreted very differently than than it would at least for me as an adult so being um being compassionate about that or being understanding of that 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 the person who internalized that was just a kid um, has also been, been helpful. And I don't want to jump too far ahead here, but yeah, I think, I think that, that um, breaking that down and that's just one, that's just one kind of, but it's kind of a good example because it's, it shows all of the, all of the factors that are at play there. Um, but of course, to be compassionate to, to ourselves takes, takes growth and takes insight and work. And, um, and again, for, for an 11 year old, I'm not sure that that, I would have to have been a pretty, pretty enlightened 11 year old, I think to, to figure that one out. But yeah. I think that's why we need help with shame. The, the, the group is the source can be the source of shame, but if we can actually find a supportive and understanding group, it can be the, it can be the opposite. It can be the cure. That's why group work throughout my whole life has been so important. You know, one-on-one -on -one stuff is great, but often the counselor is somewhat elevated in, uh, in status. So you have this more of a parent-child kind of relationship with uh, a counselor, where, if, where I think that's the real beauty and magic of peer support is we get together in a group that we feel um, that we relate to and that we connect with and we support each other. And, uh, it's, it's easier to accept in a group that's it's safer because you're, we're peers, right? We're at the same level. And, uh, I had one experience when I was, uh, fairly early on in my recovery, I had some of my other sisters show up at a meeting and, uh, they were talking about their experience and it was, it was particular to them it was unique to them but it was also a shared experience and that was a huge support for me in my early recovery for you know some of my other sisters to show up tell their story you know from their perspective it was a little different but we were there together supporting each other and that equal playing field of that kind of peer support group it, i think it's 
underutilized myself. I, you know, I think we rely too much on the, on, on the counselor uh, and client kind of thing. That's there's value there. But when we're dealing with shame, we need to feel like we're on an even playing field and, and uh, you know, those peer support type things like obsidian, like we're, we're working on here. That's why we do it is because there's real value in being able to hear other people's story that we can identify with and feel empathy with and show support to. So we're kind of taking shame and putting it on its head. Shame uses the group against us and peer support actually takes the support of the group to uh, help heal and protect the individual. I, I wanted to ask about in, rec in recovery or in recovery groups. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to sound like I'm bashing the, the 12 step model, but I wondered you mentioned about, you know, about a slip or, or, a uh, you know, a, a minor relapse in the model of, of taking all of someone's days of recovery away and bringing you back to day zero mm -hmm. versus just saying, um, this was a slip. Here's what you learned from it. Keep going. You're right. still, you're, you know, is, is there, is that to the detriment of the person who's, who's experienced that, that, that slip or that struggle? Um, and is there any evidence about that? Well, from my experience, like my early experience in uh, late eighties, early nineties was a lot of 12 step stuff and there's real value there for sure. But you have to remember uh, the 12 steps came from, to the struggling alcoholics, right? And at that time, the, the clergy had failed, the government had failed, the medical profession had failed, psychiatric um, world had failed. And what you had is you had two people of equal status. They were both alcoholics that they could trust each other as equals that came together and started to help each other. They basically said, I can't help myself. I'm going to help you. And the other person said the same thing. And that was the beginning of the 12 steps. And there's, that was, that was revolutionary at the time. Uh, alcoholics were considered, um, I can't remember the word they used, but basically they were a lost cause, you know, that nobody could help them. You know, we've tried all these things. You can't help them. And two guys got together and helped each other. So that equal footing where I don't have to feel shame when I look you in the eye and you don't have to feel shame. We understand each other. That's the beginning of coming back. So there's lots of value in the 12 steps. And I, and I uh, have got a lot of good use out of it, but it's not the, it's, it's not perfect. And that might be one that I would agree with that by taking away all a guy's uh, person's clean time with one slip rather than seeing it for what it is, you know, there, there's a huge debate around that and there's different models. What I would suggest as if somebody's looking for help is to find a counselor that works for you, you know, shop around, find one that actually you can resonate with. And the same thing with groups, find the group that actually works for you, that makes sense to you, whether it's a 12 step model or a smart recovery or, you know, other models that are out there. You don't have to it's it's not just the 12 steps anymore there's lots of different models find one that fits for you that resonates with you that you can agree with and and 
and leave it at that. I think there's, there's lots of value in the 12 steps that might not be one of them. I don't know. Um, yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. Yeah. I've uh, been considering for, for me, vulnerability is an important kind of metric for, for many different you know, personal growth, uh, mental health, all sorts of different ways that it, uh, it kind of plays into how I kind of struggled and recovered and uh, understood myself through, you know, putting myself in positions that were uncomfortable and, and kind of uh, forcing myself back into social situations and stuff like that. But I wonder if maybe the reason that peer support groups and that equal footing, like you talk about there is one of the reasons it's, it's it's so successful is because it might be easier to be vulnerable, open and honest with somebody who is on equal footing, as opposed to, you know, when you're in a patriarchal or a top down kind of relationship um, where you might not know where that information is going or, I mean, personally, I tend to feel like I've, I've been to therapy and um, I've had, you know, not much success with it, but it, but a, a lot of it was, I think the quality of the connection and my ability to kind of open up and be vulnerable where it was, I found it harder to trust somebody who was in that position where I at least perceived they might be judging me versus, you know, somebody in a, in a group may be judging me, but it's not a quote unquote professional judgment, if that makes sense. Yes. And um, I, I think that the paradox there is, is the trust risk paradox to be able to take some risk and step in the door. I need to trust a little bit. But to, to trust a little bit, I need to take a risk. And you got to start somewhere. And it's really hard to start from zero. So I think that's one of the um, benefits of having a group that is like-minded and, you know, experiencing the same problem. At least when you step in the door, you're on the same footing. So when you start, you start to hear other people trusting enough to share their story. You think, okay, I, I can see they took a risk there. They didn't get shamed in front of the group. Maybe this is a safe place and I can open up a little bit and I can trust a little bit. So I can take, take a little and risk trust starts to build. And I think that that's, you really kind of need a neutral environment or, or somewhere to start that's pretty neutral. A lot of people that start with self-help groups end up going to therapy and talking to an authority figure in that subject later on and that that's part of their recovery and part of their um, you know improved mental health but i really think that this component of the uh the peer support type group is vital in getting that that footing to get started you know and uh it, it can't be underestimated i think it's been a powerful influence in my life for sure yeah mine as well uh, so I guess what people are probably wondering is we've been talking about shame, uh, how to 
detect it, understand it, define it, uh, be aware of it. But what do you do with it? What do you do with this emotion? How do you process it? Um, Are there tools that we can use to defend against it or work through it? What have, uh, what have you had success with there in the, uh, in the past, Dad? Well, I've, I've done a lot of group work. Like I said, it was, it was part of my own recovery was to start groups and facilitate groups. And one of the things we started to realize early on is that shame is something that can show up in a group. And then we started to understand that it is the group itself that has the power. So either the fill the facilitator wielding the power of the group, as in your case, Corey, where the, you know, the teacher who is kind of wielding the power of the group focused that shame on you, that, that, that's a risk. It can happen in groups. It happens all the time. So to manage that, we started to develop first an awareness that that was going on and then a response to it. And uh, some of the responses that, well, there's a list of them and, uh, I've got them, you know, I got them right on my whiteboard here. Still it's acceptance, attention, acknowledgement, affirmation, and affection. And, uh, some of the honorable mentions that, uh, I've worked on more recently is appreciation and, uh, the development of mastery. I'm not too sure about that one, but I do think that, uh, Anyways, there's there's all of those, and uh, can you for instance, uh, can me? you can you repeat those uh, uh, slower for everybody? Okay, so acceptance, attention, acknowledgement, affirmation, affection, and uh, appreciation is one, and then uh, the development of mastery. So. Um, yeah, so there, there, those are different things that we've worked on over the years. And uh, by um, focusing on noticing when uh, shame shows up in a group is, is one of the things you need to do and kind of ask people to speak with I statements, for instance, instead of saying, you know, you, 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 which is that finger pointing, that accusation kind of thing if I can acknowledge that what I'm saying within a group is my opinion and not necessarily correct. It's just my opinion. I don't have, I, it's less likely that it's going to land on you in a shameful way that I'm judging you. So those kind of techniques within groups to um, prevent and minimize shame within the group is really important. And uh, I did, I did make some notes about those things. It's, if you're, if you're interested in specifics or, or we could talk about one of them, maybe. Yeah. I'd, I'd, uh, there's a couple that I have questions about for, uh, what do you mean when you, uh, when you say acceptance, like accepting that, that shame is a, just a ubiquitous nature of being human or what do you. I, I think it's more to do with shifting um, shame more towards guilt. So if somebody said, I did such and such, and you say, okay, I, I see that you did such and such, you know, what, what did you do with that? What, you know, how did that go for you? I mean, what was that experience? Rather than saying, oh my God, that's terrible. You know, 
just being being accepting of what is rather than laying a judgment on someone and just using okay. that in my language in my in the group dynamics if i'm the facilitator if somebody's using uh language that's not um, accepting of what is in the group and what's going on i might correct them as far as or ask them to you know it could you say that in a, in a way that's uh you know less I don't know. I, Shameful. See, well, <laughs> it, it, even saying that can be a judgment. It's very delicate within the group, right? So you, the facilitator has to be aware of this going on and really um, lead by example, I guess, is what you do in, in, as facilitating. You have to lead by example to use non-shaming behavior. And people feel enough shame. You don't have to rub it in. You don't have to add to it. So you know, that's already there. You just don't want to uh, amplify it within the group, which is very easy to do. Um, okay, that makes sense. Could you tell us what uh, you've got awareness and you've got attention there? So I think mm -hmm. awareness is is pretty, you know, we've, we've discussed that and the importance of it. And then uh, how does that relate to attention in your definition, sir? So it's attention, I would say. Mm. You see, mm. Yeah, attention, yeah. All, all these A words. So attention is to be able to um, see it without judgment. So when I'm uh, somebody's telling their story, I'm looking at them. You know, I'm not, I'm, I'm paying attention to it and it's bringing it into the light. And that's, that's often the risk about, it's the exact thing that somebody that's feeling shame does not want. It does not mm. want it in the light, right? So by giving attention to it in a non-judgmental way, we can model that, that I see you. And you, you, may, have, um, you may have noticed that I use those, I use that, those phrases sometimes when we're, we're doing our obsidian meetings. I, 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 I see what you're, I see you and I hear what you're saying people that are in shame really need to be heard. They're isolated. They're alone. They're afraid. They don't know how to deal with it. They're in this loop of shame that's beating on them internally. What they need is to be seen without judgment. You know, I see you, I hear you, I'm here with you, you know, uh, those kind of messages. Right. And it can draw people into a place that's safe where they can start to process this stuff. So uh, that would be an example. These were developed with a, a very good mentor of mine named Marv Schmunk, who is uh, an amazing guy in group dynamics. He's just an absolute master at it. And he, he was the one that started really developing these tools of uh, handling and dealing with shame in the, in the process, in the group work, because it is a danger. It's really easy to use the power of the group against an individual. You have to be aware of it. And we have to be able to intervene and, and uh, support people so that they're not shamed out of the group. That's happened to them in their whole lives, right? That's why they're alone. That's why they're in addiction in the first place is because they, you know, they're, they're carrying a lot of shame about their behavior or, you know, the judgments that people had about them. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's really good stuff. And uh, you call these, all these A words, you've, you, you and Marv have grouped together, you call them shame breakers, right? Right. 
in in group dynamics we were we were um, dealing a lot with um, at least one quarter of, of what we were doing in group work was to do with addictions and uh, so the the main emotional energies we're working with is anger um fear um love and here i am blanking out again anyways is it it joy that you're yeah joy is one of them for sure so those four but shame would show up we're working with these energies and some something in the dynamic where shame would show up and we kept wondering you know what is this what where is this this uh how does shame fit into this model and what we found was that joy and and shame are actually connected on a continuum and if we are dampening down uh other emotions to to be able to dampen down and suppress uh shame especially with an addictive behavior like taking a substance that dampens down our emotions. We really lose, we really lose um, access to joy in our life. And that is the, you know, it just becomes a darker world. Yes. I've dampened down my shame by, you know, obliterating myself with my drug of choice, but I'm not, I'm not getting access to much joy in my life either. So. Um, yeah, that's, that's right. That. <laughs> That's a, a, an excellent perspective, and that definitely checks out with me. W- would you agree with that, Corey? I yeah, that is fascinating to to make that connection between shame, shame and joy. Um, I was just thinking about shame as as one of you guys mentioned it as self consciousness or self awareness, and um, you know i i use the I used an analogy. Nathan and I were talking a few episodes back that 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 joy as a spiritual experience. And, um, you know, I think about being a kid and going to hockey games and being so engrossed in it and so just enthralled. And, and when the team would score or when the team would win and having like that explosion of emotion and feeling, feeling joy in that, whatever, 30 seconds or minute of, of celebration and of joy, there was no self-consciousness there. Yeah. I wasn't thinking about myself at all. I wasn't thinking about how I was reacting. I wasn't thinking about how I looked, how I, about anything. It was just that moment of, of expression of that feeling in my body. Yeah, yeah. exactly. That's and, and, Yeah. And there's a spiritual, spiritual side to that too. Right. Um, and, and it is a side that, that as shame goes up, that the ability shame goes up or, or addiction, that, that ability to experience that level of joy without self-consciousness drops, 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 drops big time. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. And that's, that's when I, I ran into a point where I realized that I was probably, I felt okay for about half an hour every day. The rest of the time I was struggling with some kind of, you know, side effect from substance abuse, whether it was drowsiness or constipation or, you know, whatever the the problem was, uh, apathy or lack of energy. Um, That's, that's kind of how it, 
you basically become flatlined in that respect. You feel absolutely nothing. And you, I mean, I can remember just kind of having a conversation with myself and asking what, what is, what are you doing with your time? What is the point of this? I mean, this can't be why I'm here. If there is a why it's not to live like this, Mm -hmm. you know, that is the amazing um, road to recovery that I can attest to is that I came from a, a place and a childhood and a young life of shame to a place of joy. That is the reward for the hard work of recovery. And I re- recommend it to everybody. The path out of shame is towards joy. And I wish it for, for everybody. And, and it's part of the reason why I still continue to do this work because what better way to live our life than to have access to joy. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Well said. Very well said. I I wondered about, about um, asking guys about this. I I observe such an inclination um, for folks in the groups that I attend to. You often hear folks say, I was having a really bad day. I'm feeling really crappy today. And I almost didn't come to the meeting. And, and there's, there seems to be, and I've, I've experienced this too, where on a bad day or on a dark day, I don't feel like going there and sharing and being open and being vulnerable. And invariably when I do go and I do express myself and I do try that vulnerability on, I do feel better, but it's that it's actually, I think for myself, it's that same voice of shame which is so linked to that addict voice, so to speak, that tells us, don't go and share with Nathan and Burton. Be by yourself, stay inward, stay, you know, ruminate in those thoughts mm-hmm. and, and pushing back against that and saying, no, I'm going to go to the group and I, I share and I feel better. And then of course, for myself or for anyone else who comes to the group and, and shares and shows that vulnerability, everyone benefits from that. And there's always, that's where the lessons are. That's where the dialogue, the really good dialogue comes from. But that inclination to, to, to not share or not participate when we're having a bad day. I, I think that for some people, it seems like it's, there's a, and it's a very internal one, but an expectation, that, oh no, you only participate if you're feeling strong and feeling good. But I, I really don't think that's the, the case at all, you know? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. If that was the case, then, well, my obsidian groups would be basically useless because it's, it's not the people who are having a good day that bring the, that bring the firepower. No, it's, it's the people who are having a rough time and it's, it's them putting themselves in a vulnerable position, expressing their pain or their struggle and other people seeing that being reminded and learning that's that's the whole part so yeah if everybody just went in there well, i think they would shut the place down because obviously everybody's <laughs> nobody's got a problem <laughs> i would agree that that's the uh, the i call that my uh, my addictive voice or my addicted voice wants me to be alone wants me to be separate 
and because I'm more vulnerable to uh, triggers for any kind of addictive behavior that I might have, whether that's whatever they are, there's lots of them. And uh, people know what their own uh, triggers are, but it is fueled by isolation. And that addictive, that I call it my addict mind will, will give me those messages. Don't go online today on the, uh, don't go on the meeting today. Don't go, don't pick up that phone and talk to a, your sponsor or your friend. Don't do that. You know, just stay here and be miserable. <laughs> That's kind of the message, right? Yeah, totally. And when, and when we challenge that and we feel better at the end of the meeting, we're building new neural pathways that, that remind us that there is a better way. There's, we can get out of this. There is a pathway out of addiction and out of isolation, out of that misery of being alone. And just because shame is trying to chase us out the door saying, you know, you don't belong here. You better run and hide and cover your face. Uh, when we challenge that and find that there is places of support and love and connection and joy, that uh, the addictive personality or the addictive mind quiet gets quieter and quieter and, and less has, has less power over our life. And I really believe in that. I'm, I'm a much more joy-filled person today than I was when I was a child that couldn't even look somebody in the eye because I was carrying so much shame. So I highly recommend it. When you don't feel like going to a meeting, that's exactly the time to go to a meeting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic stuff. Uh, you have... Uh... You have brought the goods. There's lots of interesting material there for people to think about and uh, some stuff that I, I'd never heard before and always, uh, always a good perspective, dad. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time to do this. I know, um, you know, we've, we've, we've been having some uh, difficulties uh, personally in our family with, uh, with health issues and stuff like that, but uh we're doing okay. And, uh, uh, I appreciate you taking the time to, uh, come on here and, and share your thoughts. I think they're important for people to hear. Thanks, Nathan. And, uh, I do agree that, you know, we've been through a bit of a tough patch lately with health issues in the family, but it's interesting to see how the work we've done in recovery, in building relationships, restoring relationships, you know, having, honest and and loving contact within the family because people are doing their individual work is such a benefit at a time of crisis that we've rallied together and we're helping each other sometimes when a big health issue comes into or you know a big problem comes into a family it just makes things worse and things shatter and fall apart and and people are even more alone and it's one of the reasons why i you know, I uh, spent so much time in my young life that actually cost you time with your dad. And I am fully aware of that. Mm-hmm. But here we are doing something together as adults that I don't think would have been possible if I hadn't, you know, done the work that got me here. And, you know, I'm very proud of what you're doing with Recovery Machine and uh, Obsidian. And uh, it's because I th- you know, it's all those little steps along the way that, uh, that we've taken as a family. We're, we're much better off than we were. And we're certainly much better off than the predecessors that I talked about earlier when I did the family tree and I could see the mess 
that this whole family had been in, right? Mm-hmm. And, and we're doing better. You know, yeah. It's not perfect yet, but we're on the right path and we're <laughs> going the right direction. So yeah. really uh, proud of what you're doing here with Recovery Machine and with Obsidian. Thanks. Appreciate that. Uh, what do you think, Corey? I, yeah, thank you, Burton. Thanks for being here with us. I, uh, I just wanted to add, I think that, that for both of you guys, the, the unique, unique thing that you guys bring as a, a father son, um, duo in, in, in the obsidian obsidian meetings is you model the openness and, and that the conversation can include family and to be, to break that, that barrier and break that wall, which brings us back to shame. You know, that, that inclination that you don't, don't have that difficult conversation with your family and don't include the circle um, because it does, you know, it does take a, there's a team team approach there and there's a huge benefit to that team approach. And um, you guys certainly model that for all of the people who, who come to your meetings and certainly for myself as well. And, and to see that it works is, um, yeah, it's been very, very helpful for me. Oh, that's good to hear, Corey. Thanks. Thanks, Corey. Really appreciate the opportunity to be here. I hope it's uh, helpful to others as well. All right. I think we'll call it a wrap, guys. That was an excellent discussion. And uh, we will uh, see everybody next time. Check us out on YouTube and uh, Spotify. And feel free to leave comments on YouTube. Uh, We appreciate that. Let us know how we're doing. And subscribe to our channel as well. That that helps with the algorithm. And get a hold of us via email if you wish. It's... uh, us at recoverymachine.org. That's us at recoverymachine.org. All right, everybody. We will see you next time. Thanks, everybody. See you soon. Thanks for having me.